Coming to you from the front lines of America's fight for freedom, it's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. What this world needs is a few more redheads. So people ain't afraid to take a stand. What this world needs is a little more respect for the Lord and the law and the working man. We could use a little peace and satisfaction. Some good people up front to take the lead. A little less talk and a little more action. And a few more rednecks is what we need. Welcome to the show, America in View. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. Matt Doster here in the studio. Brother Brett is on the road today. And joining us on the phone line, Brett, how you doing? I'm doing great, buddy. I'm back in the holy city of Charleston. Uh, we're up here for our 30th year Citadel reunion. And uh, I think one of the unique things that we share in common is that we both went to the same university exactly four years apart. So I won't see a lot of the same friends that you have, but the reality is that uh, it's going to be great to catch up with folks. And the weather up here is beautiful. And... Um, if people have ever tried to plan a vacation outside of the state of Florida, I always recommend Charleston. Yeah, it's a great place. I was there um, last year for my 25-year reunion, and similar experience. It's a beautiful city. It's one of the great jewels of the southeast, and a uh, great, great spot for us that we have a lot of um, affection for based on our college experience. Uh, it's always good to get back, see old friends, and, and kind of see how things are going um, you know, South Carolina is big in the presidential dynamics, uh, third in the nation for the for the Republican presidential primaries. Um, you've got uh, Joe Biden putting a lot of eggs in that basket, sort of skipping the first couple of states um, with a convoluted theory that, uh, you know, is probably going to hurt him a little bit. But South Carolina is the center of, of a lot of things in the political world that we've been talking about. You've got Nikki Haley and, and Tim Scott there as well. Uh, have you seen any discussion of Republican politics since you've been there, Brett? Yeah, not a whole lot. You know, you see a lot of yard signs and advertising for local candidates. But from my experience in 2016, my, my experience tells me that most South Carolinians really uh, sort of support the home team. And so I think it's just a prerequisite for many South Carolinian voters that they're either supporting Nikki Haley or Tim Scott, you know, if they're not, of course, supporting Donald Trump, because right now he's technically in the lead in South Carolina. But uh, people just really aren't showing a lot of, uh, I think, uh, public advertising on their lawns or what have you for presidential candidates yet. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's it's a home team state. And uh, one of the things that we've been highlighting on our website is the dynamics of the Republican versus Democratic Party with some constituencies that have not typically been favorable to be Republicans, but you're starting to see some switching going on this year. Uh, there was an interesting couple of interesting figures. Uh, one was the, the mayor of Dallas, who not only switched to become a Republican earlier this year, but also launched a mayor's association for Republicans, um, basically saying something that we've been saying for a while, which is that cities need conservative leadership. We have had cities in the past that have done quite well under Republicans, but it 
tends to be the domain of Democrats. Uh, and then we also saw a legislator in Atlanta uh, switch from Democrat to Republican. She was getting some flack from her from her liberal colleagues because she was standing up for the police, for funding law and order and so on. And then we also, you and I, Brett, have personal experience with uh, here in Florida uh, with with Andrew Gutman, who's running for Congress, who is really, I think, keyed in on a on a very important point, which is that the left has abandoned Israel, and they're certainly not standing up for uh, the rhetoric that that you would typically associate with support for Israel. They've been cowardly in the face of a lot of sort of surprising anti-Semitism popping up around the world. So um, that that's another factor that we're looking at across the country, and it's just interesting to see um, the possibility that you could see some big shifts in the party dynamics. Yeah, I've been a little surprised by it. I mean, I knew you and I have talked about this. And I've heard from a lot of my friends and colleagues in the industry from around the country. And I think many of us are just kind of baffled by the Biden administration's uh, response to a lot of the uh, anti-Semitic rallies, a lot of the anti-Semitic comments. You know, one of the things that Lois Frankel, who was Andrew Gutman's opponent, uh, said the other day uh, when they were I guess, asking her questions about all of the anti-Semitic language out there, is uh, she said, well, yes, there's a lot of Islamophobic language out there as well. And I think the reason why that was so surprising is not only does Lois Frank represent a district that's heavily Jewish, but she's Jewish herself. And so I think a lot of people were just kind of sitting there scratching their heads. So that kind of response, I think, has really created a lot of opportunities. So I don't know. We'll see. I think it's going to really be interesting to watch how this evolves over the next six months. Yeah, and the the traditional lines of loyalty, it's always been a puzzler to a lot of people why the Jewish community, um, not the entire Jewish community, but a lot of the Jewish community does seem to stay Democrat. Uh, you certainly see that with some pockets in South Florida and in um, New York and other places. But you know, when you look at look at the values of the Jewish faith or uh, some of the family dynamics there, it really seems like that group should be more in line with Republican and conservative politicians. And then certainly on the question of Israel itself, uh, I mean, you look at what Donald Trump did with uh, moving moving uh, the American embassy to Jerusalem and uh, working what appears to be a deal with Morocco, where where Morocco was one of the first. Um, Muslim nations, majority Muslim nations, to recognize the state of Israel, and it seems like there's something in the works there with Saudi Arabia too. You know, these are these are um, policies that you would really think would be a natural fit for Republicans. So, who knows? I mean, this could continue to develop. Obviously, the the conflict in the Middle East and the conflict in Israel and Gaza is contributing to that, and then we're just really seeing the true colors of a lot of political figures in this country as these protests happen and you have a group of people that are just unwilling to really say the truth it's like they feel trapped in their own talking points you know how can i how can i say the truth here the obvious truth and it's going to alienate me from from uh, all of my liberal constituents yeah i want to go back to something that you said about why the jewish community has remained so loyal to the democrats over the years i, I think it, it's multi-generational and it goes back to World War II. Uh, you know, FDR obviously was in power, 
during World War II. He was the one that was viewed as standing up to Hitler uh, and the one who stopped the perhaps the greatest modern persecution of the Jews of all time. Although I can argue there, there are some places that were worse, for instance, in Russia under Joseph Stalin. But Hitler was definitely one of the great bad guys of all time. And the Jewish community, I think, still has a great deal of loyalty to the spirit of FDR and his courage standing against Hitler. You know, it reminds me, Matt, of you know, our grandfather, who was a consummate Harry Truman fan. And he was loyal to Harry Truman until the day he died. And the reason for that is because he was on an aircraft carrier heading for Japan for the invasion uh, as a young Marine whenever the bombs were dropped. And it was a tough decision to make those uh, uh, forces understand that it was in our uh, military interest and our political interest to go ahead and drop what at that time was considered to be the most devastating uh, weapon of all time. But those people who were thinking that they were going to go face certain death invading Japan loved him until the end. And, and I think that's what you have going on with the Jewish community. So it's difficult to pull them back from their loyalty to the Democrat Party, but it's happening as they see this becoming more pro-Palestinian, really anti-Semitic party at this point. Yeah, and it's really it's really pro violence, right? I mean, it's it's uh, there, there, there's a policy position out there around the two state system or the two state solution, which has been relevant and part of the discussion. I mean, going back to World War One, going back to when when Britain was really getting involved and trying to make a decision about what this piece of land was going to be um, used for after the the, uh, the fall of the Ottoman Empire in World War One. So it's it's really this pro violence, pro anything goes. The the uh, ends justify the means mindset that you see coming out. Um, Brett, we're going to talk about some other issues that you and I have been uh, kicking around, and it's the lack of discussion around taxes in the Republican presidential um, primary conversations that have gone on so far. We're looking forward to that. We're going to head to break here, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about why people are not talking about taxes. Bringing you right to the front line of liberal insanity. Watch out for that first step. It's a doozy. <laughs> and back again. America in View will be right back. Rescue me. Freeing the woke from their liberal chains. It's Matt and Brent Doster with America in View. Okay, welcome back, everyone. Matt and Brett Doster. We're going to start talking about something that came up with us, Brett, a few few weeks ago, talking about the lack of discussion around taxes in this country. And it's something that we've wanted to cover for a while. We, we sort of got um, a lot of other big issues in the current events over the last few weeks, so we haven't had a chance to go back and revisit it. But you had you had pointed this out during the Republican presidential debates during the first and the second one. There was virtually no discussion of something that has always been a big part of political discussion in this country, and that's taxes. And uh, we went back and we did a little bit of analysis of those conversations. In the first debate, taxes was mentioned six times. 
And three of those times, it was in the word taxpayer, which is really this kind of catch-all um, sort of synonym for like the stakeholders of America. So it wasn't even like it was really a substantive conversation about taxes. And the other three times, it was when candidates were referring to um, their, you know, kind of like their resume um, items that would show that they were conservative, talking talking about cutting taxes in the past, um, but not really any conversation around tax plans. Uh, the the future of this country, economic crisis, you know, any of the sorts of things that have been a, a big part of those conversations. And in the second debate, there was a little bit more conversation around it, but again, not what we've seen in the past. Uh, we're going to get into this, Brett. But what are your what's your kind of overall thought on that? Yeah, I'm I'm trying to figure it out because it's not easy to understand why uh, the American Taxation System hasn't taken more of a center stage. And honestly, I wanted to just kind of talk about it this more this morning to really set us up for a broader discussion as we move through the election period, Matt, and just say that the candidates aren't talking about it because I think there's too many uh, what I call bunny trails that come out of it, like, well, what budget items are you going to cut? Or what military programs are you going to cut? You know, Or are you going to cut Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid? All those kinds of questions that go along with tax policy. But the reality is that taxes, spending, and entitlements right now are the biggest threat to American national security. So we can talk about Iran, we can talk about Russia, uh, North Korea, whatever. If we don't get our fiscal house in order, we're going to bankrupt ourselves, and we won't have to worry about the Chinese because there won't be a financial powerhouse called the United States in the world anymore. Yeah, you know, those resources are really front and center every time we talk about international affairs, foreign affairs, conflicts overseas with Israel, with Ukraine, with the potential for things that could happen with Taiwan. Uh, the resources of the Western world is a big part of that. Uh, you know, how, what, what's our financial ability to supply resources to allies? What's our ability to defend ourselves? Are we going to run out of bullets? You know, just these kind of more mundane questions that really have a lot to do with our safety and security. So it's right at the underneath, you know, the underpinnings of these conversations. Um, let's Just a little walk down memory lane. We went back and looked. So you go back to the 90s. Steve Forbes really made a lot of um, noise talking about a flat tax. And at first he was sort of derided. There was there was some uh, conventional wisdom that, that said he didn't know what he was talking about. But it really started to gain traction, and a lot of other Republican uh, leaders started talking about the same thing and even started adopting some of his principles. Uh, then you think about, like, 2012. Uh, we remember this this election cycle well. Uh, Herman Cain, who can forget the 999 of Herman Cain, right? 9% nine, 9 personal income tax, 9% federal sales tax, 9% corporate tax. And it was catchy, you know. I mean, he caught fire. He was, like, leading in the polls at one point. Um, you had Rick Perry repeat something. It wasn't really his original idea, but it's something that people always liked. He talked about sending in your taxes on a postcard. You know, it should be as simple as as just basically writing down, how much did I make, here's the percentage, and send it in on a postcard. Uh, I think he had a plan where you, were, you would be able to choose um, a 20% rate and that you know you could just sort of opt for that no deductions no anything just just pay your taxes at that simple rate um mitt romney he was always kind of a 
had like an MBA approach to everything. He talked a lot about cutting corporate income taxes and what what sort of impacts that would have. And then um, and then even Donald Trump, when he got into office, he took steps to simplify the tax forms. It never got down to a postcard, but it it did um, did kind of reduce the the size of the forms and try to simplify a few things. There has definitely been a lot of interest in the expansion of the uh, IRS, the new funding for the IRS. So I guess you could argue that that part of it has been in the public conversation. Um, but yeah, it's almost like we've lost sight of the fact that ultimately all this money comes from taxes and the way we tax things, what we tax, how much we tax it has a profound impact on our economy and, and how much we're producing as an economy. Yeah, agreed. I want to ask you a little, a couple of trivia questions here, Matt. Hit me. So when do you think that the first federal income tax was implemented? Uh, that's a good question. I'm thinking um, Abraham Lincoln, but I don't I don't know if I'm right about that. And you're, you're actually much better at this than what I thought you were going to be. That's correct. It was it was to help finance uh, the Civil War. Do you know what the rate was? I'm sure it was low. Um, <laughs> less than less than a percent. Uh, no, it was right at one percent. One percent. One percent. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it was a temporary tax that they put into place. The actual modern income tax wasn't fully enacted until 1913. Um, so let's talk about the marginal tax rates in 1913. Okay. Okay. 1% for 0 to $20,000. Okay. 2% from 20 to 50. 3%. On fifty to seventy-five, four percent on seventy-five to hundred. And by the way, you know anybody making seventy-five thousand dollars per year in nineteen thirteen was like in the astronomical class of economic powerhouses. Um, it was five percent on income for one hundred thousand to two fifty, six on two fifty to five hundred. And seven on income, five hundred thousand dollars and up. When you look at that, then as opposed to now, yeah. Can can we switch? Can we go back? Right. <laughs> exactly. Now, interestingly enough, it did skyrocket uh, during the uh, lead up to World War II and after World War II, because obviously they were trying to pay off the war debt. But uh, then it started coming back down immediately. The reality is what we've seen, though, is that every time there's a tax that's implemented, really at any level of government, the bureaucrats and the politicians just can't seem to get their grubby paws off of it. And so you just have this constant push to take more and more of income as though somehow government is a uh, for-profit entity that needs more revenue. And, and it really, now, some of the discussions we're having really is sticking on the edge of what I would call drastic socialism and communism as a uh, viewing taxes as a redistribution of wealth policy. Yeah, and that's that's really the underlying heart of the matter question, right, is what what sort of a government and what sort of an economy do we have in this country? There is this ongoing inherent struggle between a free market and a socialist system, and, you know, America has not been pure on this issue for a long time. I find it interesting that those income tax rates that you referred to in the early days, it was always progressive, right? So there was always um, what you would almost call a penalty for being successful, a higher tax 
higher taxation rate for those higher incomes. And that has been right at the heart of the struggle. It kind of gets into what uh, Steve Forbes was talking about back in the 90s when he really started pushing this flat tax, this question of equity. What is the right amount of taxation or right rate of taxation to pay? What are we taxing? What kinds of economic activities are we ta uh, taxing? And then, of course, how much do we tax it? Um, I do remember, I think during the Eisenhower years, the the upper rate of taxation, Brett, was something like 90%. I mean, it was an extremely high rate. I think even some of that survived through the Nixon and into the Reagan years, but I, th I think all those rates got rolled back to something a little bit more reasonable. But we still live in a day in which if you're at those highest, if you're at that highest bracket, you're probably paying half your half your uh, earnings in taxes. And, you know, that's unjust to a lot of people. Uh, and, and you can argue, is it even sustainable? Yeah, I would say it's more than unjust to a lot of people. I think it's unjust to everyone. And what you're saying there is really fits within, I think, some of my frustrations for all of our Republican candidates this time around. They are embracing a lot of the questions that some of our commentators are asking them. I should call them questioners or moderators of these debates. And they're not challenging the premise of the question. And so what I think these guys need to get back to is saying, look, I don't want to talk about whether social services is or is not going to be funded at the uh, full rate that you want it to be. We need to get back to understanding whether we need to be doing that as a government at all. Exactly. Um, we're going to be right back. We're going to take a quick break. We're back talking about the future of our country. Don't go anywhere. America in View will be right back. Come on, baby, while you've been gone so long, you've been gone so long. Where men are men and the ladies just want to love them. It's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. Welcome back, folks. Uh, we're talking about the future of our country and is it sustainable? We've got big problems with our um, financial picture at the federal level, our government, our spending, our taxing, just everything uh, all wrapped together. It's a it's a head scratcher, and we're trying to figure it out for you. Um, Brett, you did a good job quizzing me in the last segment. I want to do the same thing to you this time. Uh, do you know what the federal budget is in 2023? The number. Oh, man. What the exact number is? For well, you don't have to give me the exact number. Just ballpark. Yeah. So I I would have a much better ballpark guess for you on the overall uh, national debt. But no, I'm not sure what the budget is. Go ahead. $6.2 Unbelievable. Yeah. So, and then what do you think the deficit is? So last time I checked, I think it was right around $30, $31 trillion. Well, that's the debt. Oh, I'm sorry. What did you say? The deficit. Yeah, the deficit. So, in other words, how much are we? Yeah. How much more are we spending in a year than what we're than what we're taking in? Yeah, let's say uh, let's say the deficit's fifty percent. Well, it's not that bad. It's one point four trillion. Um, so our revenues are about four point eight trillion, mm -hmm. and then our our uh, spending is six point two trillion. Now, those of us who went to the school of hard knocks. <laughs> can pretty quickly say that's probably not a good path to be on. Um, the basic principle of living within your means is something that our federal government has never practiced. 
And then if you dig into the numbers, uh, you know, you get into what's even more daunting is uh, we couldn't even turn those turn those spending streams off if we wanted to because of the $6.2 trillion that we're spending each year, almost $4 trillion. Oh, actually, as I'm looking at these numbers, the number for 2022, it was over $4 trillion is entitlement spending or mandatory spending, things that we have obligations for, uh, Social Security at, at $1.2 trillion, and then the healthcare programs, Medicare and Medicaid at $1.4 trillion, and then this uh, other category at $1.4 trillion, which I'm not even sure what fits into that. So, I mean, these numbers, it's like it, it can it can depress you if you look at it too long and think about what, what does the future look like. Now, now, I've got a question for you in return. I got Okay. So how much do you think it costs us out of the budget this year to maintain the national debt with the interest payments? I'm cheating because I'm looking at a spreadsheet that gives me that number <laughs> all right well that's fine cheat um yeah so the the um net interest in 2022 475 uh, billion and then in 2023 it goes up and i think that's probably because of the increase in rates and interest rates so 640 billion uh in 2023 yeah so look here's here's the deal what you just said is exactly right the reality is that because of the increase in interest rates, we're getting you know, stuck with more indebtedness. So right now, if interest rates hold steady, and if uh, they're even torqued up a little bit more, they will estimate by January of 2024 that we will have spent almost a trillion dollars in 2023 on maintaining the national debt. So it's really becoming unsustainable at this point. I mean, they have one of two options, which is, they have to figure out how to unleash an economic boom, which that's not really government's job. We can talk about that. Or they have got to stop spending. I mean, they just have to stop the spending uh, or it will be uh, unsustainable here in the next two to four years. Yeah, and, and, you know, this is one of those things. It's just kick the can down the road, which America has been doing for generations. There was – there were – government surpluses back in the 90s i remember that it was during the t the first kind of big tech boom and there was a lot of uh, government revenue coming in that had not been anticipated so we actually had a surplus during the clinton years uh bill clinton had nothing to do with it it was all because of economic activity that had led up to that but at least since then we've been in a deficit posture uh, we're spending more and more and more and th there's really just not a lot of attention being paid to it now, what I will say has been get, gotten a lot of attention the last couple of years has been, one, inflation, right? Uh, minimum wage has been a tax policy battle, not tax policy, but but certainly an economic policy battle that has some of the same in, impacts as high taxation. And you've seen that at the state level, and you, you've seen it with some of the federal politicians as well. Um, do you think that people are just distracted right now? They've got these other concerns. They're worried about how much foreign aid are we sending to places like Israel and Ukraine? And we've just gotten our eye off the ball and forgotten, hey, we've got to, we've got to have a sensible tax policy in here. Well, maybe. I, I think the numbers have gotten so big and so astronomical that people just don't really even understand it anymore. I, I think that's one of the big issues with it. Because, you know, if you go back to, like, say, whenever Trump uh, started, and I shouldn't blame it all on Trump, it was Congress, too. But they started spending like drunken sailors 
to supposedly prop up the economy after we made the arbitrary decision to shut down the economy, right, as a result of COVID. And, you know, the national debt jumped by uh, double digits in the trillions. And we've been saying for years and years, oh, my goodness, you know, another trillion is going to break the bank. It's going to break the bank. It's going to break the bank. Well, the economy did keep going, and people's lives didn't change a whole lot. They got all this free money from the government. And so for a short term, I think people were just kind of lulled to sleep. It's like, well, hey, you know, nothing's going to change. It's just another couple of zeros on the end of a, of a number, and uh, life goes on. And, hey, it feels like i got more money in my pocket. I think you're exactly right, and I, I think that it's like, what does it feel like? And and right now people feel like they have some money, or at least they did over the last couple of years. Um, you know, and I, one of the things that I think inevitably comes back to haunt people is when they do run out of money. And, and what do they start doing at that point? They do start paying attention to politicians who are talking about making life more affordable. And, and a big way that government can affect that is by, is by cutting taxes. Um, one of the, one of the um, issues that gets a lot of play in this debate is the notion of equity, right? Like if I'm paying taxes, how much should I pay versus how much should you pay? And this, underlying debate is over whether our country is going to be a redistributing uh, redistribution sort of quasi-socialist economy or if it's going to be a true free market in which everyone gets treated the same. This has been an area that certain Republicans have championed. Some have stayed away from it. Some have some have been champions of it. Um, do you see that being a part of the debate once we get, say, to the general election? Maybe. Um, maybe. I, I think sometimes in the world of politics, people try to avoid talking about the strong medicine of spending cuts because everyone starts wondering, well, <laughs> when they talk about spending cuts, you know, it's fine if they cut someone else, but don't cut me. Uh, but, Matt, look, you know, the Booking Institute or institutes, institutes, whatever they call themselves, is you know, not known for being what I would call conservatives by any stretch. Uh, they have always talked about tax cuts and uh, any plans for tax cuts or any kind of reform of taxes, meaning that you would revise them downward, revise the rates downward, as being irresponsible, uh, etc. Well, the Trump tax cuts are set to expire in 2025. So look, if Biden and Kamala Harris are reelected, the Trump tax cuts will expire because it requires congressional action and a participating White House to extend those to the next level. I got to read you this paragraph that came out of the Brookings Institute by a couple of these like really liberal eggheads who, you know, one is a gal who's a, a professor at Yale, of course. The other is a professor at UCLA. L listen to the listen to their statement here inside the beginning of their white paper. They say, there is much to be gained from approaching tax reform in 2025 with the goals, and here's their goals, raising revenue, okay? That means they want the tax cuts to go away. Increasing progressivity, that means we need to do more redistribution of the wealth from the rich to the poor. And by the way, the definition of rich keeps just getting broader and broader. Enhancing efficiency, whatever that means, because if there's anything we all know right now, government is not efficient. And then you're going to love this. In fact, 
all of our listeners will love this, and improving global cooperation. Now, the thing that should scare everyone to death about that statement is, yes, if a Republican wins the White House, they will never include any of these principles in their attitudes related to taxes. But if Biden and Harris are reelected, if we lose the House, if we allow the Senate to remain in Democrat hands, all three of those leaders in those posts will absolutely be taking their cues from people at the Brookings Institute and other liberal think tanks and will push this basically what I would call global goals and progressive income taxes ahead of any kind of economic prosperity for the United States. Yeah, scary stuff. Anytime I hear the word progressivity, and I'm not sure I have heard that before, but it doesn't sound like progress. All right, we're going to take a break, and when we get back, Brett, let's do let's do a fun exercise. We're going to talk about the taxes we want to get rid of. On the front lines fighting the insanity of the woke, America in View will be right back. Front lines fighting the insanity of the woke. It's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. Okay, welcome back, folks. Uh, Brett and I are solving the problems of the world today. We are we are talking taxes. We're talking about the economic health of our federal government, and we're talking about what we would do if we were in charge, which is just really a lot of fun to think about. Um, so let me hit you up with that, Brett. Let's start talking about how would we change things? What would be your highest priorities if you could change the tax system at the federal level? Matt, before I give you sort of my list, would you mind if I make an appeal to our audience for a moment? Yeah, man. Uh, I want to encourage anyone who's listening to the show today to go to our Facebook page, American View, and let us know which taxes you think would be the top ones that you'd like to get rid of or reduce. Matt, with that being said, um, hopefully our audience will participate here. Uh, let me just tell you this, my friend. If I were dictator for a day, and that's a scary thought, it, it will never happen, nor should it ever happen. But if I were, let's dream for a moment, dictator for a day, the first thing that I would get rid of at the federal level is a federal income tax. And I would also get rid of corporate income taxes. And... Then the next question would be, well, well what would you replace that with? <clears throat> I, I am all in <clears throat> on a national sales tax. I've seen how a sales tax works in Florida. It taxes people's spending habits. And let me tell you what that does. It provides a, an honest index for government to be constrained to people, the people's ability to pay for their government. When people are spending more, you raise more taxes. When people are hurting financially and they spend less, you have fewer taxes to spend. And quite honestly, government should always be spending in line with the ability of their people to pay for it. So that's what I would do. That would be probably the first two big ones that I would go for. So eliminate the, the personal income tax and eliminate the corporate income tax and go with a national sales tax that would tax consumption only yeah uh, we're on the same page there and there's just so many things that you could do to try to to try to change the tax code uh to me probably the worst tax on the books is the inheritance tax it is right baked into the 
socialistic redistribution mindset that basically those who have there's some sort of underlying injustice to it and it's the government's responsibility to take that money away and and move it on to other people um you know i think everybody can sympathize with the idea that we want everyone to succeed we want everyone to uh to succeed and prosper in this country but when you start using the power of the government the power of taxation which ultimately is police power if you don't cooperate you go to jail uh, when you use police power to take money away from families and and give it to others, it, it's just the, the principle of it is not good. It's it flies into the face of free markets being able to earn uh, or to keep what you earn and, and to be able to give what you what you earn to other people, you know, at your own discretion. So that's a big one. Um, any sort of progressive taxation. I mean, the income tax is progressive taxation, obviously. You could have an income tax that's flat, going back to the Herman Cain, uh, Steve Forbes world. I would be more okay with that. Uh, but, yeah, I agree with you, Brad. I think that if you if you got rid of it altogether and replaced it with a sales tax, uh, that that would be inherently more uh, fair and just. The The big problem – go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, let me just I, – I didn't mean to cut you off, Matt, but I can't help myself here. Can I just let my spleen for a second? And, by the way, this is our show, and I, I needed a show like this today to just be able to vent my spleen about taxes. But hopefully I'm doing it on behalf of our audience as well. But here's one thing that drives me nuts. When people talk about the national sales tax, they'll, they'll come back and just say, oh, my gosh, we can't do that. Because uh, if you really analyze how much money we're paying in income taxes, if we do a national sales tax, I mean, you're going to be paying like 100% on your purchases. You know, you're going to go out and buy a gallon of milk. It's going to cost you, you know, six dollars, and uh, ultimately uh, the tax on it is going to be another six dollars. It's going to be twelve dollars for a gallon of milk. And the thing I always think is, you know what? That may be the case, although it's probably not. You know, I will say it's probably more like forty to fifty percent tax. But it should enrage that person that they would even think it's going to cost that much to replace the income tax because that's how much the government is taking out of our productivity. And what we're paying to them is basically a share of the labor that we put into our livelihoods. So all money is is a representation at the end of the day of, of our labor. And so essentially we work our butts off to try to accumulate and try to provide for our families. The government steps in and takes that. They don't apologize for it. And yet, say they can't change the system because they're worried that the sales tax is going to be too high. I just think that's ridiculous. Yeah, and there's another issue, which is just in terms of of how the equity issue comes into play. For most people, the income tax return is a moment of pain. You you uh, you have to calculate all your numbers, and you have to send in the uh, the amount that you owe if if it hasn't come out of your withholding in the right number. There is a whole group of, of Americans out there that their income tax return is a source of cash. They get cold, hard cash back from the government because of the policies that are baked in that in some cases go towards uh, understandable issues, but in many cases rewards bad behavior. And so you have an entire segment that are eager to get their tax return in because they're going to get a they're going to get a basically a paycheck from the government. Yeah, I mean, look, that's another big issue you could talk about, but people would go insane. Again, it's almost become an entitlement. But, you know, people, I hope I never run for office. I guess I'll go back and pull this episode and say that, you know, I'm 
against poor people. But the whole idea of giving people tax credits for money that they didn't pay into the system is ridiculous. I'm, I'm fundamentally opposed to tax credits, period, because that, what that is is that's a uh, government politician trying to bribe you into accepting their bad government policy usually instead of just letting you keep the money as you earn and let you do with it what you want. Yeah. Some of the things that we're kicking around are unlikely to succeed because there are so many people on the left that um, shout us down and use euphemisms like regressive taxes to describe flat taxes. One of the other things that you can do in tax policy is just try to bring a little bit more transparency or understanding to taxes. So when you go buy gas, you see a price on the sign, right? It's the price that includes the taxes. But if you buy something in a store, usually you're seeing the raw price and the taxes added at the end. There is an argument that if some of those practices and rules could be changed to show, to remind people how much they're actually paying in taxes, or heaven forbid, even if you have a federal income tax, just get get rid of withholding. Make people have to send the money in. Make them have to write the check or do the wire or whatever it is that they have to do so that the money actually hits their bank account and then they have to give it back to the government. Those could be some things just from a policy standpoint that could really change how people think about taxes. Yeah, 100%, brother. I agree with you on that. Now, I I, I agree also that, that fundamentally I don't know if that process would work because people would have emotional meltdowns and never send their money in and the IRS would be running around, you know, trying to collect. <laughs> It'd just be a disaster. Um, interestingly enough, one of the recommendations in the Booking Institute piece that recommends not renewing the Trump tax cuts in 2025 is that we really need to make a full-scale commitment to fully fund the IRS. Uh and, and I think, you know, with everyone's apprehension about empowering these big federal agencies, no one wants to see the IRS fully funded. And I don't even know what that means, fully funded. Uh, but they have some arbitrary calculation that they make about uh, IRS agents and how much more revenue that means that they would collect, et cetera. But, I, but this is where I think Republicans should come back with some plans. It has been shown over time again and again that when you lower tax rates, revenues usually go up because people are more willing to pay them and spend less time trying to figure out how not to pay them. And again, these are just simple things that I wish that some of our Republican leaders would be willing to inject in the debate next week that we have not seen thus far. Yeah, it's really been a missing uh, part of the conversation. Who knows? Maybe next week we will see some more discussion on that. I have a feeling that the question in Israel is going to, to dominate a lot of that. But, you know, hopefully there's some dot connecting that goes on to remind us that, hey, in order to survive some of these big challenges, we have to have a healthy economy and a healthy, healthy tax code. Brad, it's been a good conversation. These are big topics, big issues. What do we tax? How much, how much do we tax it? Um, gets right to the heart of what kind of government we have. We have to remain vigilant to defend principles of freedom over material gain, I think. I think that's a big part of it. And especially when we're in these situations where you've got one faction using the tax code against another, um, it's not it's not good a, a good way to have a country, and it's not a good way to have an economy. As always, we want to hear from you. Visit AmericaInView.com. Thanks for listening to America In View. For more information, go to AmericaInView.com.